Humans have been migrating since the beginning of time. Driven by conquest, climate, crime and hunger, the human race has always been on the search for greener pastures. Migrants are still on the move in the modern era. The motivation is similar, but crossing borders has become increasingly more difficult. This leaves those on a quest for employment, a safe environment and escape from war with few other options than more irregular forms of migration. This week in Africa and the Global Illicit Economy, we take a look at new research from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime that paints a nuanced picture of migration in North Africa and the Sahel, and in the process, adds new understanding to the worlds of human smuggling and human trafficking. I'm your host, Lindim Tongana. At the height of the European migration crisis of 2015, images of Africans packed tightly in small boats attempting risky journeys across the Mediterranean appeared all over global media. Some were rescued and seen falling to their knees in prayer as they were pulled aboard the rescue ships that would take them to Europe. Others were not so lucky. Their fate, captured in images of capsized boats and dead bodies washing ashore the pristine beaches of Europe. Overcrowded and top-heavy, the wooden fishing boat packed with migrants tipped over, sending hundreds plunging into the sea off the coast of Libya. Some tried to swim, others appeared to be swallowed up by the boat as it capsized. Rescuers on the Italian Navy patrol vessel Betico worked quickly to save more than 500. The Italian Navy brought the rescued migrants and refugees into port today in Sicily. Although migrant flows have since ebbed, public anxiety in Europe remains a catalyst for punitive policy measures and heightened security controls. The result has been an increasingly securitized migration landscape across the Sahel and the Mediterranean. In May 2015, Niger passed an anti-smuggling law commonly referred to locally by its number, 2050-036-2015-036. And the law has essentially been accused locally, and rightly so, of the economic devastation that came after it. It essentially criminalized the transport of migrants that had been widespread before. The law was passed to support European partners in their efforts to curb irregular migration to Europe. But I think that we should note that nationally, the decision to tackle irregular migration by the, the central government was actually prompted two years earlier in October 2013. Alexandra Bish is a senior analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. There was an awful event, 92 Nigerian migrants died in the desert after their vehicles broke down. And at that point, legislators said, we will need to put an end to this. But this process was definitely accelerated by European partners to tackle irregular migration. So the law was eventually enforced by mid-2016. More than 280 drivers and other smuggling facilitators were arrested. Up to 500 vehicles were confiscated in Agadez and Dirkou, which is a hub in the north by Nigerian security forces. And essentially, the effect that had on migration was that the numbers dropped drastically. So from the 350 migrants arriving every day in Agadez in early 2016, 
The numbers dropped to 15 a day in 2018. Was it Niger on its own that adopted these more restrictive measures? Or did you see similar levels of securitization emerging throughout the region? Niger was really the hub. This corridor between Niger and Libya was the main one that was used on the central Mediterranean route. So the bulk of interventions happened there, and that's where we saw the biggest consequences. However, at the same time in 2016, there was also some measures were also taken in Sudan. So Sudan, Sudan shares a border with Libya and received some EU funding to tackle irregular migration. And they were accused of misusing those funds by funding the rapid support forces accused of killings and other grave human rights violations in Darfur, notably. What they essentially did was policed the Sudan-Libya border in a bid to halt those flows from Sudan to Libya. Another country that that we should note is Chad, which has maintained an anti-smuggling and frankly an anti-migration stance for a number of years. And this has been closely tied to the country's fight against illicit gold mining in the north, but also rebel activities in the north and the east of the country. So while the implementation of of this anti-migration stance has been dubious locally, flows through the country did not really pick up with the criminalization of migrant smuggling in Niger and the law enforcement in Sudan. And I think that this is due to a mixture of both geographical and security reasons. So, I mean, just the geographical location of Chad. So what we've seen in the country is essentially a steady but low flow of East and Central African migrants who continue to travel from Eastern Chad towards Northern Libya. But West African migration through Chad has not really picked up. And how did migrants respond to these changing security dynamics? We can identify four main shifts that happened to this smuggling system after the enforcement of the anti-smuggling law. So a shift in tactics for those who continued to work, a shift in activities for those who decided to get involved in other activities instead of migrant smuggling, and then a shift in the geography, really, the shift in locations of routes, and in some cases, a shift in actors who were involved. So in terms of tactics, the smugglers who continued to engage in migrant smuggling activities after it was criminalized, their methods essentially went underground. So the activity went clandestine. Now that we're five years on from the enactment of Niger's anti-smuggling laws, is the legislation still holding or do you see a recovery in the migration industry? I think that broadly the legislation is still holding. Although we saw a little more leniency in 2019 from uh, local authorities, which was in a way quite good because it allowed the economy to be somewhat revived. But in 2020, so far, what we've seen is arrests have resumed. But one thing to note, however, is perhaps the reasons behind these arrests have somewhat changed. So before, especially in mid-2016, the arrests were mostly the result of directives that were set by the Niamey government. And today, they seem to be more the result of a willingness by local security forces, especially in the north, to extort smugglers and migrants. Security forces remain a deterrent to smuggling and to irregular migration. 
but not for the same reasons. And there's a key indicator on our side that we've noted. Of course, first we hear smugglers who tell us that when they're arrested, they can give the equivalent of between 500 and 1,000 euros and they'll be released. And the other indicator is the fact that we've spoken to the prosecutor in, in Agadez and, and we asked about the, the statistics. Um, there are fewer and fewer cases that are being referred to him. So essentially, people are arrested, but they don't go through the whole process of, of being tried, etc. That was Alexandra Bish, a senior analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Over the past five years, nations bordering the Mediterranean have placed increasingly more restrictive measures intended to block the flow of migrants from North Africa. But migration hasn't stopped. It's shifted. New research from the GI published in The Intersection of Irregular Migration and Trafficking in West Africa and the Sahel uncovers how emergent patterns of irregular migration are affecting the dynamics of and vulnerability to trafficking. We know that in the last two to three years, it has become increasingly difficult to reach Europe for migrants traveling along the routes through sub-Saharan and North Africa. And this is because of a number of policy interventions established by the European Union and its partners and countries in North Africa and the Sahel with an intention to stop the movements towards Europe. And we felt that given the increased difficulty, this probably has created increased risk for individuals moving along these routes and may have shifted the pattern of vulnerability to trafficking. That is, given the increased difficulty in reaching Europe, probably more profiles of migrants have become vulnerable to traffickers, or at least different profiles of migrants when compared to before. And so to track this, we conducted a qualitative survey with almost 1,700 migrants in the region in order to be able to create a representative set of statistics and data, which as far as I know has not happened as yet along these routes. And we used proxies to gauge or measure the vulnerability to trafficking. And so the proxies were things like access to financing, financing strategies, knowledge of the risks of migration and trafficking, and experience with smugglers. Arezzo Malakuti is an independent migration researcher and a senior fellow at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Irregular migration and smuggling and trafficking are always difficult to research because they are clandestine activities. But trafficking in particular is difficult to research because victims are quite unlikely to want to talk about their experiences for very understandable reasons, because they're quite traumatic experiences and they may create a sense of shame in the victim and so they don't like to talk about it. They are also often coerced by their traffickers to stay quiet and may intimidated into believing that they or their families will be harmed if they speak out about what has happened against them. So for this reason, it makes it very difficult to conduct research on trafficking. And so what we wanted to do in this study, rather than simply tracking how many people have been trafficked and where, which would be difficult to gauge in any case, we wanted to look more specifically at how the pattern of vulnerability towards trafficking had shifted along the routes to Europe. In your recent GI research, The Intersection of Irregular Migration and Trafficking in West Africa and the Sahel, you identified seven forms of human trafficking. Can you briefly discuss what they are? 
In the study, we wanted to look at the prevalence of human trafficking along routes to Europe, as well as understanding the patterns of vulnerability towards trafficking. And so we used proxies to be able to do that. And in order to structure our survey, we selected particular forms of trafficking to focus on. And while there are seven different types that we focused on, I should mention that they were detention, kidnapping, forced labor, slavery, sexual abuse, and organ trafficking. But I should point out that detention is not technically a form of trafficking. It is a form of abuse. Um, So we did include it in our analysis of trafficking because detention is so intimately connected to other forms of trafficking in the region. How prevalent are these forms of human trafficking in North Africa? In the context of Libya, we have migrants being detained in militia-run detention centres and then there are high rates of trafficking inside those detention centres, but it's not technically a form of trafficking. What we found, the survey results indicated that 54% of our sample, and bear in mind that our sample is almost 1,700 migrants in two countries, Mali and Niger, and 54% of those had been detained, 32% had been kidnapped, 11% had experienced forced labor, 7% slavery, 4% sexual abuse, and 3% organ trafficking. But what's really important to note here is that a very large proportion of our sample had been through multiple forms of trafficking on their journey. And so they would have gone through more than just one of those seven forms of trafficking. And in fact, we found that 34% of our sample had been through two or more forms of trafficking. And only 40% of our sample had not experienced any form of trafficking. What are some of the factors that increase a migrant's vulnerability to being trafficked? Migrants who are aiming for Europe as opposed to migrants who are aiming for North Africa or other African destinations are more often trafficked because they are perceived to have greater financial means. We also found that one way that migrants have started to attempt to address their vulnerability to trafficking and abuse along the routes is to not take all of their money with them, to leave some of it at home or with someone along the way and have them send it to the migrant when it's required while being an attempt to address vulnerability to abuse and trafficking has also increased migrants' vulnerability to trafficking. And this is because some migrants would leave the money with a smuggler and this would increase their vulnerability to trafficking because that smuggler would then perceive them as having greater economic means and then introduce them to traffickers. We also found that migrants who are using smugglers in areas where they may not need it. So, for example, the ECOWAS region is a region in West Africa that is a region of free movement. It's a little bit like the EU. And in this region, migrants don't need smugglers because they have the legal right to cross those borders without visas. However, many migrants did use smugglers in this region because they found that a lot of border officials were corrupt and would ask them for bribes to cross borders, even though they had the legal right to do that. So using a smuggler would allow them to cross those borders clandestinely and then thereby avoid having to pay border officials. But migrants who used smugglers in ECOWAS were more vulnerable to trafficking. We also found that migrants who moved with several different smugglers 
as opposed to just one, reported a higher incidence of trafficking and were more severely trafficked, so may have faced multiple forms of trafficking. We also found that women are categorically vulnerable to trafficking along these routes simply as a result of their gender. And in fact, there are no other sociodemographic markers that show any difference in trafficking rates other than gender. So those are some of the key findings, but of course there are many more. Can you expand a bit on what you've just said about gender? Are there particular places that are more dangerous for women than others? And what kind of activities are women usually trafficked into? We have two basic profiles of trafficked women. There are those that are trafficked from origin, from their source country. Before they leave home, they are already within a trafficking network that is moving them to Europe. Usually in this case, they are either told that they are going to Europe or North Africa to work in some kind of domestic job. So they are fooled into believing that. And then when they arrive at destination, they are forced into prostitution. In other cases, we have women who are trafficked along the way. So they leave their home voluntarily with the aim of undertaking an irregular migration towards North Africa or Europe and somewhere along the way they are trafficked. And in these cases, it's usually because they run out of money somewhere along the way and a smuggler will say to them, that's okay, you can travel for free and when we get to destination, you can work and pay off your debt to me. And then when they arrive, the smuggler will push them into some sort of of prostitution in order for them to pay off their debt. We also have cases of, and this is a new trend that we discovered in the study, that you know, in some geographies, traffickers are losing income because of increased counter-smuggling and counter-trafficking work along the routes. And so they are looking for new business models and therefore mixing different forms of trafficking. So an example of this is that we found Nigerian women who were forced into uh, sexual exploitation and were being trafficked for the purposes of sexual exploitation were later pushed into organ trafficking as well. Well, Libya is a through point for migrants in transit to Europe. In response, Libya has put in place migrant detention centers that have been called hell on earth by those detained there. So what we have in Libya is a policy of migrant detention that began during the Gaddafi regime and continues today. But what has complicated this already difficult landscape is that since the 2014 civil war or the first Libyan civil war, we have more and more militia groups opening up detention centers for migrants. And what happens in these militia-run detention centers is many forms of trafficking. So the most standard and common that is almost uniform across all detention centers is the extortion of migrants. So they will be detained and they will be told to call someone like their family or friends or somebody else to ask them to send money for their release. And once that ransom has been sent, then they can be released. Of course, many migrants and their families and friends don't have the financial means to pay the ransom. The ransom can be as high as 10,000 euro for certain nationalities and in certain parts of Libya. The migrant that cannot pay ends up being abused and tortured over and over again until they pay. If they still do not pay after some time, then detention centers will often sell the migrant to another detention center or another militia group. In 2017, CNN captured exclusive audio from an auction of migrants being sold in Libya. We're ushered into one of two auctions happening on this same night. 
crouched at the back of the yard, a floodlight obscuring much of the scene. One by one, men are brought out as the bidding begins. 400. 500. 550. 600. 650. 700. Very quickly, it's over. And that receiving group or center will pay for the migrant because they believe that they will be able to extort money out of them by trying different abuse and torture techniques. There are also cases of sexual slavery amongst women in detention centers. There are also forms of slavery of a non-sexual nature in these detention centers. We have also high rates of forced labor. So we'll have cases of Libyans going to detention centers and telling detention center staff that they require require labor to work on farms uh, or agricultural areas, and then they will pay for migrants and take those migrants to their farms or agricultural areas and force them into a form of slavery. You mentioned organ trafficking as a particular form of trafficking. What is the prevalence of organ trafficking and where is the demand coming from? Let's say the majority of our sample said that only 10 to 20 percent of the people they had witnessed had experienced some form of organ trafficking. But having said that, I think what's important and interesting about organ trafficking is that while it's still not happening in very high rates, it does look like an increasing phenomenon. And the research points to the fact that it's increasing because traffickers are looking for different business models in the face of increased counter-trafficking and counter-smuggling initiatives along these routes. So they're trying to diversify. The other key points about organ trafficking are that we found that there are new routes forming for organ trafficking. So in the past, we found that most uh, cases of organ trafficking were destined for Libya, but currently we are seeing uh, new routes forming towards Asian countries like Malaysia and Singapore. In some cases, we find that organs have been harvested in Libya for sale in Malaysia or Singapore. So that means that migrants who become victims of trafficking are taken to Libya. In Libya, their organs are harvested, but then the organs are sent to Malaysia or Singapore for sale. So there is quite a transnational element now around organ trafficking, and the networks are very transnationally connected. In your view, what policies should be adopted to better address the EU's concerns while also making sure that those who genuinely need asylum are getting it? I think that any system of migration management needs to be built on a number of interventions and approaches. What we have found, I think what the research has proven, what our experience has proven over the last, say, decade since the Libyan revolution in 2011 and the Arab Spring is that the migratory routes towards Europe are extremely dynamic. And no matter how much we try to stop migration towards Europe or smuggling of migrants towards Europe, we are unsuccessful because migrants and smugglers will look for other ways. Whenever we put policies in place to try and stop it, we simply move the routes elsewhere. We don't stop them, we just move them around. And so I think that what we can therefore learn from that is that 
probably the best way to address the situation is multifaceted, where of course we do need to have counter smuggling and counter trafficking initiatives. But also the most important thing, in my opinion, is to increase the legal channels for migration towards Europe. Because our experience has shown that we cannot stop this phenomenon, we also know that we do have a demand for migrant labor in Europe in light of the aging population in many European countries. There are a number of sectors in European countries that lack local labor supply, and they're usually low-skilled jobs that Europeans are becoming a little bit too educated for, let's say. We do require migrant labor and we will require migrant labor into the future. So ideally, we would map the sectors where we require labor and create short-term visas for those sectors. And we would increase the legal channels for seeking asylum in European countries also. And then we would increase our counter-smuggling and counter-trafficking work. But when we try and increase counter-smuggling and counter-trafficking work without providing alternative avenues and pathways for those migrants and asylum seekers, then what we essentially end up doing is pushing them further underground into more risky and more dangerous and more clandestine journeys, which simply jeopardizes their human rights and opens them up to a great amount of risk. The only way our counter-smuggling and counter-trafficking efforts can be successful is if, in parallel, we have increased pathways for legal migration to Europe. Lastly, Arezzo, do you think policymakers in the EU are starting to become more open to the idea of migrant labour programmes or legal channels for migration? My personal feeling and opinion that I'm happy to share is that the migration question has become so heavily politicised at the European level that what we are seeing now is decisions made on purely political reasons and justifications. So I feel that policymakers are not really making decisions based on what's best for the situation or what can best address the situation. Rather, they are making decisions based on what's popular and what will help them be more in favor of their constituency. I think this is the real issue right now when it comes to migration. But of course, the hope is that more research can start to shift that, where the research can provide that voice that is describing the reality on the ground and pushing for policies that are more cognizant of the reality of the ground rather than popular politics. That was Arezzo Malakuti, an independent migration researcher and a senior fellow at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. As migrants seek alternative routes across North Africa, Algeria is an option, but it's increasingly more dangerous. In June this year, the US Department of State published its annual Trafficking in Persons report, which stated that the government of Algeria does not fully meet the minimum standards for the elimination of trafficking and is not making significant efforts to do so. Therefore, Algeria was downgraded to Tier 3. Tier 3 is the lowest level. In 2016, Laila Barato, in collaboration with the photographer Bashir, launched the project Terminus Algérie, aimed at documenting migration in Algeria. Algeria is a country which today has multiple migration profiles. But as far as people of foreign nationality, particularly sub-Saharan nationals who want to go to Europe, 
there is the idea of going to the north of the African continent and then, from this, north of the African continent to go to Europe. En route to Algeria today, you have to have a certain amount of money. And it often happens that when you arrive in Algeria, either through arrests by the police, problems on the road in the different countries, or extortion by smugglers, you need more money. Algeria is a place where people stop and until they have more money to continue on the road. There was a moment when the road to Libya worked very well, so people in Algeria were going to Libya instead. There were times when Libya was blocked and people stayed in Algeria a little longer before trying to go through Morocco. These last two years, people have spent a lot of time reflecting and waiting for an opportunity to continue the road to Europe. And that's why we created the Terminus Algeria project, because as there are people who stop in Algeria, they live there, they have children there. There is a cohabitation between Algerian people and the migrant foreigners. And that's what we wanted to document. So there are no set rules, i.e. there are actually as many stories and solutions as there are people because it's an adult choice. So there are people who decide that once they arrive in Algeria, they want to stay there because they find work easily, because they adapt to society, because despite the difficulties they encounter there, they find that there are fewer difficulties than in their society of origin. Leila, earlier this year, the US ranked Algeria as a third-tier country in terms of human trafficking. How has Algeria earned this reputation? The problem with the classification of the United States is the definition used. This famous phenomenon of expulsion of people from Niger is based on the fact that Algeria considers that migrants who come from Niger in organized networks to beg in the streets in big cities are in fact mafia networks in which people are trafficked. Algeria considers that these mafia networks are used to finance organized crime and or possibly terrorism. This is why Algeria has decided since 2014, in agreement with Niger, to systematically arrest people coming from Niger and deport them at the border. These operations do not only expel Nigerians, but it also fights against trafficking networks that helped it launch these operations. Now, the classification from the United States meets a number of criteria, including things that must be written into the laws. But a country that will have written that into the law but is not enacting the law will be ranked higher than someone who will take action against human trafficking but will not have enshrined it in the law. That is also why Algeria is at the bottom of the ranking. It has not confronted with human trafficking phenomena like other countries in the world. What forms of human trafficking are most prevalent in Algeria? There are not the two forms of trafficking as there are in other countries of the world. However, the question is how to adapt the definitions of what is known in the rest of the world to allow for the inclusion of other phenomena that are problematic. Let me explain. In a situation of migration, people are vulnerable. They are afraid that something will happen to them. 
When you come from sub-Saharan Africa, you often know very little about Algeria. One doesn't necessarily understand the codes or the culture. One has the impression of being in a very hostile environment. If people who have brought you the networks of smugglers, your community explains to you that outside there is danger. So people are afraid to go outside. No one has tied you to a wall. You stay because you are afraid. Vous restez parce que vous avez peur. So who then is most vulnerable in this situation? C'est effectivement les gens qui ont le moins d'informations et souvent c'est les femmes. It is the people who have the least information and often it is women. Because when faced with physical violence, there is a fear of physical violence. A man will be more likely to say, I will be able to defend myself. A woman will obviously be able to defend herself, but she will tend to say, okay, I prefer to have the protection of a man. In any case, this is what I have observed in recent years in the migrant communities I have worked with and then on the issue of Algeria. There have been cases where people have found themselves stuck in Algeria. For example, when a young woman arrived who had been sent to Lebanon to work as a cleaning lady and ended up in Algeria and did not know Algerian law. She did not know that after three months, without having obtained a visa or without having a stamp in her passport, she would be considered to be illegal. And once she was considered illegal, she was too afraid to go to the police station to file a complaint because she thought she would be deported. So the vulnerability comes globally from the lack of information and from some smugglers at the beginning, obviously, but also the communities present use this lack of information to get things more easily. Who are the smugglers and who are the traffickers? And do these roles interchange, generally speaking? I would tend to say that in Algeria, there are few traffickers in the sense that one understands it. There are a lot of smugglers. There are many people who try to make money from the vulnerability of others. But it can be a migrant who has paid a smuggler to cross the southern border, who has had to pay taxes in communities left and right, and who one day will tell someone, okay, well, you want to find a job in Algeria, I will help you find a job. But in exchange, you pay me. So we are not in fixed positions. The positions are already interchangeable. What strategies do traffickers use to lure people into trafficking activities? There are few strategies in place. In a coordinated way, from the country of departure to the countries of arrival, because one of the networks of traffickers, especially on the questions of Nigerian communities, they use Algeria just as a stepping stone country. These are people who are in the countries of origin and who, in order to respond to the desire to go to Europe, will say that you can go to Europe and the journey has a stop. And that stop is Algeria. And in Algeria, I know someone who can help you. With this offer of help on the road to Europe, often men or women will find themselves in debt to a smuggler and they will have to work to pay off their debts. But often, this work will consist of working in a clandestine bar with the women, possibly a prostitution activity. And it is once the debt is repaid that people continue on their way. Often, there is also the choice to stay because the community provides protection. 
One of the main strategies is to say if you are alone, you are vulnerable, and if you stay in the community, you will be protected with what it means to be in the community. It involves solidarity, and it involves obeying when someone asks. Can you describe the law enforcement and anti-trafficking efforts being adopted in Algeria and what impact they're having on migration? Algeria is organizing expulsion operations under the agreement that has been made with the Nigerian government. People are arrested. They are grouped in camps until they are numerous enough to organize a convoy that will go to southern Algeria. And there, they are deposited at the border with Niger. It is a strategy of operation, arrest and expulsion which is, in my opinion, not really effective at the moment. It seems that the expulsion operations, for the moment, are not slowing down the phenomenon. This has led international organizations to propose voluntary returns. The demand for voluntary returns really increased because people knew that deportation was possible. That doesn't stop the arrivals. But that, in my opinion, pushes a certain number of migrants who were not in these networks to go back home or to leave Algeria. North Africa and the Sahel have for years acted as a gateway for migrants going northward to Europe. But policy changes in transit countries like Algeria, Niger and Libya have shifted migration pathways, consequently increasing vulnerability and exposure to trafficking. Misunderstanding forms and definitions of human trafficking add to the problem. But recent research from the GI adds nuance to the previously murky world of human trafficking in North Africa and the Sahel. That's all for this episode of Africa and the Global Illicit Economy. A special thanks to our guests Alexandra Bish, Arezzo Malakuti and Leila Barato. If you want to learn more about changing patterns of migration and human trafficking, go to globalinitiative.net and read The Intersection of Irregular Migration and Trafficking in West Africa and the Sahel. While you're there, feel free to avail yourself to last week's podcast on Afghan meth and illicit gold mining as well as other podcasts from the GI. And please take the time to leave a review. Subscribe and share the podcast on social media. It helps us get noticed and improve the show. When you hear from us again, we'll be in East and Southern Africa. Until then, this podcast was produced by Alexandria Sahai-Williams. I'm Lindy Mtongana. Thanks for listening. <laughs>